something that's interesting that I think happens is that whenever we do an activity, it can be climbing or anything, we we kind of squeeze out of ourselves our our natural ability. For me, I tend to be more intuitive, go for it, then see if I can sink or swim, that sort of thing. And that can be helpful. You know, it can it can get me engaged into situations and that engagement itself can make me successful. But what all of us need to do is to build on our natural ability with deliberate training, whether it's physical training, mental training, or, or technique training. Welcome to the O2X Tactical Performance Podcast. O2X has spent years training our nation's military and first responders, as well as athletes and other elite organizations in the best ways to maximize both physical and mental performance. Take an in-depth look at our team, the organizations we work with, the issues that tactical athletes face on a daily basis, and the best ways to overcome those issues. Today's guest is an O2X resilience specialist with experience in stress management, resiliency, and all things mental training for tactical athletes and first responders. He distinguished himself as a pioneering rock climber in the 1970s and 80s when the top climbs were bold and dangerous first ascents. These personal exploits are the foundation for his unique physical and mental training program, The Warrior's Way. In 1995, after thorough search of literature and practice of mental training in the great warrior traditions, Arno formalized his methods, founded the Desirdra Institute, and began teaching his program full-time. Since then, he has helped thousands of students sharpen their awareness, focus attention, and understand their athletic and life challenges with coherent, learning-based philosophy of intelligent risk-taking. He has taught clinics across the USA and abroad, holds a bachelor's in geology, spent several years operating his own geological consulting firm in the Wyoming oil fields, acted as a chief financial officer for an industrial tool distribution company, attended the Army Ranger School, and served a non-combat tour in Korea. Please welcome to the podcast, Arno Ilgener. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. How's it going, Arno? Uh, it's going, going great, Joe. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No, I appreciate you coming yeah. on. Where are, you, uh, where are we getting you at? I'm at home in Tennessee, middle Tennessee, near Nashville. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Um, the last piece of your bio kind of threw me for a loop. I I was reading about you as like a rock climber and all of a sudden, uh, you're, you're, yeah, I know you're in Korea, you're running a, a tool consulting firm, you are a CFO. What an interesting story. I, and I know your background is, is heavily involved in rock climbing. You started uh, in the 70s and 80s and you took the lessons that you learned there you created a mental performance, essentially a mental performance curriculum out of these lessons that you learned. So um, first and foremost, a line that jumped out to me was that you were a pioneer in rock climbing. So I'd be curious as, as to how you got involved into, into that world. Yeah, well, it was seems like a long time ago now. It was when I was a senior in high school, I was 18, getting ready to go into, you know, select a university, what to study, what was my interest. And I was introduced to rock climbing at that time by a couple of individuals that became very close friends. And my twin brother also, like we were kind of a team of four and uh, we we're kind of learning from each other. But I think what really resonated with me with climbing was just the movement and the physical engagement of it. I grew up on a farm and we played outside a lot, climbing trees and everything. Sometimes we don't really know why we're attracted to something. 
You know, it, it's in other words, the why motivation is more intrinsic. I, I feel like I just have to do this. You know, it's something that resonates with me. And climbing was like that. And so I started in the limestone crags here in Middle Tennessee back in the early 70s. And climbing was really very different than it is now. But climbing has taken me over the last 45 years or more to a lot of different places around the country and, and abroad. It's been a really fun activity to be involved in. What was the knowledge around climbing at that point? Was there, was there a big community around people rock climbing at that point? Had people, I know the thing that jumped off the paper to me was like the first, first ascents or the first big climbs. Like what was the, the culture around rock climbing at that point in time? Yeah, very different than today. It was more, it seemed like a nonconformist kind of activity. Like it wasn't really accepted. People sort of on the fringe were doing it. And, and it's, it's changed a lot since then, you know, like the, the kinds of disciplines that make up climbing now with climbing gyms and what climbers are able to do in the, the big ranges of the world. It's much more performance-based and athletic now, especially going into the Olympics, than it was back then. Back then, it was like we just uh, climbed, we put in our protection, you know, to keep ourselves safe and kind of did our best not to fall. Now, falling is like a regular part of climbing. It's like you have to embrace it, find a way to work with it, learn from it so that it's not a distraction toward being able to climb. A really interesting piece of, of this whole story is because you just bring up, you brought up gear right now. And at the time in the 70s and 80s, when it didn't have, you know, the attention that it has now, you know, there's a real lack of, of technology and that plays into everything. Gear, you know, for example, had to have been far worse. There was probably little to no networking, at least not like we have now with social media and people talking about, you know, what climbs they're doing at the drop of a dime, weather could change. And, you know, you don't have a cell phone to tell you that. And so there's a ton of major risk that has been eliminated in with today's climbers simply based on simply based on technology. So what are some of the key differences that you see now compared to what you were dealing with back in back in the 70s and 80s? Well, technology definitely does improve over time, you know, and it did for the climbing protection that we use. When I when I was climbing, I I was actually started climbing when climbers were still using pitons, you know, just like these steel wedges that you would hammer into a crack, but that was really damaging the cracks a lot. And so California climbing pioneers, they started developing what they called clean protection, where you could you know, place an aluminum wedge or something in the crack that uh, could be removed and not scar the crack. So I was started climbing when the, te- uh, the technology was like that, but, uh, Pretty quickly after that, uh, camming devices were invented where you could spring-loaded device, you could contract it, put it in the crack and let go and it would expand, you know, it made it a lot easier to protect climbs. But, you know, one of, culturally, I think one of the things that's really changed a lot from back in the 70s and 80s to now is mentorship. When I was first starting to climb, there weren't very many climbers. And so you see another climber at the crag, you kind of talked with them. And if they were a beginner, you know, you would like help teach them. Now there's so many climbers in gyms and, and outdoors that we've lost a little bit of that mentorship. And 
we're maybe in more of in our own small groups and we don't reach out to others that are outside of that group as much, you know, and try to uh, see if we can mentor them and help them to improve. So I got this from, from your website, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but as you navigated these climbs, you started to accumulate pieces of pieces of literature and notes and audio programs and whatever it may be. And, and in 1995, you decided to compile all this and mm-hmm. create what is now known as your book and curriculum, which is the warrior's way. So when you were doing this, I, I was initially going to ask you what your goal was, but was the goal to kind of add to that network of, of being able to have your influence on, on future, future climbers or were you trying to, you know, take these lessons that you found and, and offer them to people so that they can apply them in their in their real life? What was what was like the underlying goal when you decided to to compile all this stuff together? Great question. I mean, one thing that I think we all come up against is like looking for a meaningful and purposeful work. You know, and so I was in my late 30s, getting ready to hit 40, and at that in the mid 90s. And so I was looking for something that resonated with me more, like something I enjoyed doing more than what I was doing at the current time, which was working in the industrial tool business. So climbing was kind of the thread that had been part of my life from when I was was introduced to it at 18. And I, I just really wanted to find a way to create a career out of that. I was kind of known for being able to deal with fear. So I started studying it and I found that I enjoyed the research part of that as much as I enjoyed climbing. So that was like the decision that helped me or the circumstances, I guess, that helped me decide to move forward that way. I think we go into these things kind of selfishly a little bit in the beginning. We have to like think of like, what do I really want to do? But then it's if we can identify that, you know, a calling that we will do the work for its own sake, then we end up being able to serve others through that much better. When you started to compile this stuff, how long have you had you been climbing for at that point? Let's see, I started in 73 and I started researching it in ni- 1990. So that's about 27 years. Uh, it was mid 90s. So about 30 years into it when you know, formally made a decision to move in this direction. And I mean, I've been researching continually since then too. I still am. So that's a never ending process, but, but yeah, it's about 30 years of climbing. Is this, tell me if my terminology is wrong. Can you be a professional rock climber or are there certain things that give you certain accolades or is it a pretty open community and you just do your own thing? Uh, it's kind of both. I mean, we you we can people can become professional climbers where they they make their living in that way, but it wouldn't be just like working in the climbing industry. You know, like I I'm working in the climbing industry. People that work at climbing gyms work in the climbing industry, or if they're a rock guide, a professional climber is more someone that has advanced in their ability to the degree where they can get sponsorship. They can get paid for climbing basically and yeah there there's some people that are able to be professional climbers and make a career that way long story long i was wondering at the time what your expertise was when you started to acquire all this information what to put together like what were some of your major climbs at that time the key ascents that you made prior to uh, Mm -hmm. accumulating this information and and starting the warrior's way Uh, i had done some of the 
claims uh, that have been done within the previous decade, like in Yosemite Valley, climbing like uh, climb Pono Zodiac on El Capitan and the northwest face of Half Dome. Probably the the climbs that challenged me the most that were more cutting edge, you might say, were first ascents that I put up in North Carolina, you know, on some granite domes over there. Looking Glass Rock comes to mind and Whitesides Mountain. And the reason those were more cutting edge, you might say, is because they were required more ability to deal with fear. You know, and so it's in somewhat more dangerous, you might say. And they they gave me some insight into and some interest into moving in this direction of mental training. You know, I started wondering, well, people think I'm able to deal with fear. Well, why? You know, what's different about how my mind is working as opposed to other people that are in similar situations? But, you know, when I when I started investigating it and talking to other climbers that were also known for de- being able to deal with fear, they couldn't really give me a, a very helpful answer. So I realized that digging into it and doing a lot of research and studying was really required for even understanding why I was able to do what I was able to do. This is O2X co-founder Adam LaRue. The O2X Tactical Performance app is finally available on all mobile devices. We've created a platform that will help you forge strong habits, track your progress, and get 1% better every day. After years of research and development in the tactical populations, we've collected the tools necessary to maximize both physical and mental performance. Whether you're looking for dietary tracking, personalized workout programming, or goal-driven mental performance plans, the Tactical Performance app is your one-stop shop for all things human performance. In the app, you'll find daily customizable eat questionnaires with suggestions for improvement and an intake tracker to monitor progress. Daily workouts based on your selected plan or app history, each paired with a workout timer, movement videos, step-by-step instructions, and the O2X prepare and recover protocols for proper warm-up, cool-down, and reducing those injuries. Thrive plans and tools to improve mental health, stress mitigation, and recovery techniques, and much more. Transform the way you eat, sweat, and thrive. Download in the episode description or through your app store. Do you think that's kind of common across across the rock climbing community, just people that are able to control their fear really well? I know in the documentary Free Solo, the 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 main guy is notorious for just almost not even comprehending fear. He's just like, he's just like, yeah, I'm gonna do this and and that's that's how it's gonna be done. And it's almost like a little bit of a downfall on his part. Like he can't even, I don't want to say he can't calculate the risk. Obviously, he knows the risk that goes into it, but he's just so incredible at dealing with fear that it, it just doesn't even cross his mind at, at that point. Do you think that's pretty common in, in rock climbers or do you think that's unique to both you and him? I, I think something that's interesting that I think happens is that whenever we do an activity, it can be climbing or anything, we we kind of squeeze out of ourselves our our natural ability. For me, I tend to be more intuitive, go for it, then see if I can sink or swim, that sort of thing. And that can be helpful. You know, it can it can get me engaged into situations and that engagement itself can make me successful. But what all of us need to do is to build on our natural ability with deliberate training, whether it's physical training, mental training, or, or technique training. So 
So I think we all tend to, like climbers in general, they're going to have these natural tendencies toward being, you know, more fearless or more fearful. You know, for for Alex Honnold on Free Solo, he actually does have a lot of risk understanding about fear, commitment, risk, you know, for what he decides to do. It can seem like he doesn't, but actually I interviewed him a few years ago after the Free Solo Ascent. And I mentioned about how how he approached his first big free solos, like on Half Dome. And he talked about mental armor, like kind of armoring your your mind against being able to perceive fear. And he realized that that was really not the best way to do it. That what worked better would be to gradually increase your comfort zone with situations so that through doing that, you can... Uh, diminish the amount of fear and be able to focus your attention more effectively on on the task. I'm happy you bring that up because one of the lessons you talked on in, in your blog is, uh, and I'll leave this in the episode description, the blog is, is called A Time to Kill for anyone that's interested, but it goes into understanding risks and almost in welcoming stress. You gave an awesome example of as when you were a lieutenant in, in Korea and you went up to one of your platoon sergeants kind of vocalizing how you were a little stressed about a possible attack coming from North Korea. And you simply went on and said, you know, let them come. And you went on to talk, tie this into, you know, optimal job performance and how accepting the risks of your chosen profession or the activity will ultimately lead to, to better results. Would you mind going into this a little? Because I think that's I think that's super applicable to people in the first responder community, which have, you know, inherently dangerous jobs. The whole point of that blog post is kind of central for all of our lives, you know, for first responders, especially, but also for the rest of us, because basically it's that we have this natural tendency to move away from stressors back into our comfort zones. Well life inherently has stressors, you know, and uh, challenges. And first responders are, that's their job is to move towards stressors, to, you know, to neutralize the threat. Where there's a regular uh, rest of society, we tend to like move away from stressors and then let the first responders kind of protect us. Well, that's how it works on, on, for a nation. You know, we each have our own responsibilities. Regular citizens have other responsibilities. But on an individual level, we need to have that same kind of warrior mentality, you might say, in how we deal with the stressors for whatever the responsibility is that we've chosen to serve our country. A time to kill just means that we need. I needed to become aware of my tendency, even as I was in the military. I was supposed to be trained, you know, to move toward the, the threat and neutralize. And here I was acting in the opposite way. And my platoon sergeant, who is a Vietnam vet, made me aware. It kind of really shocked me back into awareness about my responsibility. But I think that in general, this is something that we all need to embrace in our, in our lives, no matter what we're doing. You know, I think that ties into another lessons of yours, which has to do with with unbending intent. And that goes into what you were saying about your your chosen job as a as a soldier at that time was to attack the job at hand with almost disregard for your own safety. Right. And you used the example of what we were just talking about with the free soloing El Capitan when you were talking about this unbending intent. Either way, you know, I found this I found it really interesting because your theory that the success in free soloing this ascent came from unbending intent or 
or the focus on mm -hmm. the climb itself rather than the outcome. Like yes. the climber's full focus was on the individual action of the climb. And that played into his, into his, into his success because it was, he wasn't gearing his attention towards the ascent. He was gearing it towards each individual action in the, yeah. in the climb itself. Can you, can you go into that? Yeah, it's really important part, Joe. It's like, and it kind of speaks toward motivation. Like what is motivating us to, to do something like that? And we can look at the motivation as uh, being motivated toward achieving goals, like achieving end results, like uh, his ascent of El Cap. We can also be motivated by, you know, the engagement itself, you know, the processes, things that we're going to, the climbing process itself. But it's not an either or choice. Like both of them, those kinds of motivations have their place. You know, in other words, when we're in the comfort of our homes, we can think about stressful goals we want to achieve. We can be motivated by that. And that's actually helpful because it can give us some direction and vision for what we want to engage, a direction we want to go and apply our efforts. But then once we're engaged, once Alex is on the climb, he needs to be exclusively motivated by the climbing, by the tasks of moving his body, breathing, keeping his eyes on what he's doing so he keeps his attention there and enjoying that process. See, this is, and this is a really important part for all of us, you know, for how we live our lives. It's like we can tend to live our lives to sort of get it over with. Uh, I just want to get over this stressor so I'm comfortable again. And so we're constantly living for some future time that we think is going to be better than today, but it really doesn't work that way. When we get there, it's just another stressor that we're presented with. So unbending intent is really intent, being intentional with how we're choosing to focus our attention. And if we're climbing a rock climb, then we're choosing to focus our attention on those elements that make up the climbing process itself and really being engaged and wanting to be in that struggle. During this unbending intent write-up, the last piece of it was that you talked about was the transitioning process from intention to action. I just want to read a piece of this just because it spoke to me. It says, the last part of the transitioning process is to set an intention on what we'll focus our attention on during mm -hmm. action. We need to decide how we choose to focus our intention. This intention is attention focused in the direction of a choice or an action. Mm -hmm. choice or decision, excuse me. Warriors choose to focus their attention on the process that will occur during action. That's a process intention, not an intent for accomplishing the goal or the end result. That process intention is unbending. How did you come up with this idea and how can people in the tactical community go about using it in high stress situations? There's so much focus, I think, in our lives and in society in general toward achieving end results and I think we can get our whole identity wrapped up in those achievements. Everything from quarterly reports that public companies need to present, you know, to the shareholders. There's a lot of focus on end results. So when I was digging into this material, I found that that's really a distraction. When you're in the middle of action, like a first responder would be, you know, responding to a fire or an emergency, attention must be focused on what they're actually doing. And so a process intention does that. It's like you, like you said, that we define intention as 
attention focused in the direction of a choice. So there are certain activities that we're doing that first responders are doing, but in general, it's like, how are they engaging their mind and their bodies? So in other words, there, something that's ongoing is breathing, staying relaxed, looking to what needs to be done, uh, working as a team, looking to those activities and what you're doing with your body moment to moment as that's unfolding and keeping your attention there instead of worrying about how it's going to, how the consequence might get worse or worrying if you're going to achieve the goal or not. That's really interesting. In order to sign off, I always ask our, our guests, what's a 1% change that you would offer to our, to our listeners? I think these, this unbending intent and uh, forget the name of the first one were, were super interesting, but is there something else that you would offer to our listeners as a 1% change that they can make in their daily lives in order to create, you know, a sustainable, sustainable growth? Yes, I, I can. Um, and it's kind of the, one of the really important parts of the warrior's way approach to mental training. And, and that is, I, I think that one of the most challenging parts of mental training is getting our attention out of our mind and into the situation. So in other words, our, our attention can be just lost in our mind, lost in thinking, kind of going in circles, habitual loops of how we thought yesterday and how we're going to think. To, and we just, those patterns just really ingrain ways of thinking that can be really difficult to change. So a really important practice is to do body awareness drills. Like you can do like a five to 10 minute body awareness drill in the morning where you're tuning into, and you can do meditation also, but you're, you're tuning into sensory awareness, what you can hear, what you can feel on your skin. If you can have your eyes open or closed, you know, what's in your visual field, even with your eyes closed, there's a visual field there and noticing thoughts and redirecting to that sensate, those sensations, those senses. That's something that is a practice that can give us a a clear distinction between what is attention like when we're engaged at, engaging it in thinking and what is attention like when we're focusing it more somatically in the body. Because there are two very different ways of using our attention. And the, the body awareness drills that we can do in the morning or a meditation exercise like that can really help start breaking those apart so, so we can know if our attention is getting directed away from where we want, want it to be. For sure, man. That was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. That was super interesting information. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. That was great. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Have a good one.